Today on the Real Faith for Real Life podcast, we're going to talk about the real reason Jesus came to earth as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. Plus, we'll check in with current events to see how real faith intersects with real life. And in the news this week, one company is taking gourmet dog food to a whole new level. And we'll talk about what the kids are doing on social media these days. All right. All that and more straight ahead on today's podcast. This is Real Faith for Real Life, a podcast from Cascade Fellowship in Grand Rapids, Michigan. All right. Welcome to this week's podcast. We believe that our faith affects every area of life. So every week we start the show by talking about what's in the news. And in the news this week, we have gourmet dog food. Bill, (laughs) can you just uh, fill us in? What in the world is this all about? All right. So this is a story from San Francisco, which is filled with Michelin starred restaurants and filled with people who love their dogs. So, what do you get when you put the two together? A gourmet restaurant for man's best friend, of course. It's called, and I love this, Doug. (laughs) D-O-G-U-E. Doug. And they offer bone appetite. (laughs) B-O-N-E. Appetite. Uh, Meals featuring dishes like chicken skin waffles, filet mignon steak tartare with quail egg. And it includes a mimosa and baked treat for the owner as well. So the owner of this uh, restaurant is a classically trained chef, and he got burnt out dealing with humans. Mm. So he decided to let his business go to the dogs. And so now, for $75 a dog, uh, you can get this gourmet meal for your pet. And he says this cost makes sense when you consider how much labor goes into each meal. Here's a quote. When we make our food, he says, it's a process. It's very time-consuming. There's a lot of technique. There's a lot of method and detail to what we do. Our pastries, for example, take about two days on average to make. I know they're going to be eaten in two seconds. That's (laughs) so funny. Um, So anyway, he says the real goal of Doge is to raise awareness about feeding your dog fresh, healthy, natural ingredients. All right. What do you think? Okay. I think it's uh, a cool concept only in California, only in LA, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, I don't think that would fly here in Grand Rapids, but I mean, I can see the the bigger picture. Yeah, you want to feed your dog good food, but not $75 good for one <laughs> like snack meal? No yeah, way. That's wild. I, well, actually, I was going to say I love my dog, but as you know, we had to have our dog put to sleep just yeah. about oh, two weeks ago. Um, I loved my dog. I would never spend $75 on him. Now, in Florida, where I lived for the past 10 years, yeah. I knew people there who would go way over the top for their dogs and yeah. spend over the top amounts on doggy daycare. And like, I, I just believe dogs are happiest when we treat them like dogs yeah. and they live into their created purpose. Look at this. We're getting theological. Right? I know. Right. And so, so my golden retriever, he's a retriever. Throw the tennis ball. He is happy as he could possibly be. Yeah. Stick yeah. his head out the rear window. Let him enjoy the smells as they go by the car. That's, let the dog be the dog. You get in trouble when you read human desires into a dog. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. And there's so much better places to put that money to. Like yeah. if you think about how much money this guy's taking in, do I really want that to go back to awareness about dogs? Or maybe how about world hunger or a few other things that are going on? So yeah. true. But a cool story nonetheless. It is. 
It is definitely so. And next in the news is a story about social media. The the landscape of social media is constantly evolving and changing. So, so Bill, tell us what's new. Well, other than Elon Musk taking over Twitter, the big story, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, there's some other new things to keep track of. And one is a new app called Be Real. And I actually downloaded this app. I used it a grand total of one time. But mm-hmm. anyway, the story says this. Uh, supposedly... Be Real is designed to combat the tendency to post only artificial and fake pictures by allowing you to post only once per day and with no advance notice. So if you download this app, it's going to give you a very brief window of time each day, once a day, random time, to take a picture with the front camera and the selfie camera, and that's it. There's no taking 10 pictures and picking the best, no touching up, no editing, no fun filters, nothing. It's just you being real. And uh, that's Be Real. Yeah. Beyond that, there's another new app I know even less about, and that is Gas. I think it's Gas. It's something the kids say today. They're gassing each other up. They're giving each other compliments. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. So it's an app that's designed to help people give anonymous compliments to each other. Okay. What a time to be alive. <laughs> I know, right? Well, it feels like there's a new app every single day, and something about it is always social too, right? Yeah. Whether it's a video yeah. game or just like things that you're going to compliment people on, but... I don't know. There used to be, here's another one. There was one called Beam, and it was this video thing, kind of like Vine, if you remember Vine, where you couldn't actually hold your camera up. You could only hold it against your chest, so you oh. couldn't see what you were filming, Ooh. but it would only show what's in front of you, and that video would just get posted straight to Beam, no editing. And uh, in some ways, I think a lot of these companies are just being made to be sold to bigger companies. Yeah, sure. So, you know, everyone's trying to be a startup and get their buyout type of a thing, but... yeah. But I can see the benefit of some of these, definitely like uh, offering compliments to each other or even the be real. You know, it's a real photo. That's kind of cool. I see Gen Z kind of reacting to what they see, the toxicity of social media. So it gives me a little hope for the future. Yeah. You know, I, I scroll through Instagram very sparingly. Because it is just people's curated lives. It's fiction. It's Mm. not people's reality. Mm. So if you compare your reality to their curated, edited life, of course you're going to be depressed. Yeah. So, yeah, in that sense, Be Real seems like, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's bucking the trend, but I don't know that it really repairs it. Right, not fully. Now, you have an interesting technique to break the addiction of social media. You showed me yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So even on my phone, my, my front page is just a blank screen with only three things on it. It's texting, phone, and my email. Uh, I, I download Instagram about once a week to maybe spend 10 or 15 minutes to kind of catch up on what's going on in people's lives. Maybe post a picture from my past week too, but then I delete it because mm-hmm. then the temptation is just not there for the rest of the week and it doesn't steal my time. It's like stealing my humanity and I don't want this app to do that. Instagram, yeah, Facebook, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, it's really surreal to open your phone and see a completely black page. I've never seen that before. Yeah, right. I know someone else who just goes to Instagram through the web interface because it's so clunky. By necessity, it limits your time. But I've just turned off notifications. We've talked about that before. Uh, Somebody recommended that. I think it was Carrie Newhoff. And uh, I was like, oh man, this is fantastic. I go when I want to go. I'm never lured in by the possibility of a dopamine hit. That's the thing, right? You get the notification. You're like, oh, it could be someone great. It could be a compliment. It could be someone flaming me. Yeah. And you roll the dice and you, you click. You get the dopamine hit. And whether it's good or bad, it's like eating a Doritos chip. Yeah. 
it's addictive because if it's a good Doritos chip, you you want to get another you want one. More, if yeah. it's a bad one, then you got to try again. Yeah. Well, we've gone off the rails. I know, Pastor right? Well, Me can, and my Doritos addiction. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I can make a little connection here, though. Like, if you think about where you're getting your humanity from, mm. um, a lot of us are seeking it out on social media and other other outlets. But but our humanity mm. is actually given back to us by Jesus as the greatest sacrifice. And I know that's a little bit about what we're gonna uh, be chatting about here today. Wow, that's so good. Our source of worth and meaning, personhood, humanity. Yeah. All that and more is contained in the book of Hebrews, which we're studying. And coming up, we're going to continue our series through what I've been saying is one of the most challenging books, but also the most rewarding books in the Bible. I'm excited to get started. So let's dive in. Today is part five in our trip through the book of Hebrews. We've been saying that the main uh, message of this book is really described in two words, greater than. And so far we've seen that Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses and Joshua. Jesus is greater than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. And today, Jesus is the greatest sacrifice made in the true tabernacle. So uh, before we get into it today, Bill, I uh, would be curious to know why you think today's passage is so important for us to study. Well, I always like to start by addressing that question because Hebrews is a difficult book. It's far removed from our modern life. And so if we don't ask that question, it's like, yeah, why should we care? Why should we listen? Why should we spend time on this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the biggest benefits for me is uh, I love reading the Bible. I love doing my best at trying to understand all that's in there, because I believe God speaks to us through the Bible. But, you know, making sense of the Old Testament and all that's in it is just really, really difficult. Understanding how the Old Testament and New Testament, they work together, what the relationship is, what applies and what doesn't from the Old Testament, how people were saved back then, for instance. All of these things are, are really challenging, even for people who've been reading the Bible for a long, long time. And so I think what we're going to talk about today really helps us understand the core of the Old Testament and its function and how to understand and read what's in it. And once you do that, once you have that key to unlocking the Old Testament, it really helps you understand Jesus much better. And all the things that he fulfilled, when you understand what those things are, it makes your understanding of him and his ministry so much more full. So... I think what we're going to understand today, we're going to see that the Old Testament was a shadow of good things to come. That's from Hebrews 10.1, a shadow of good things to come. And what is a shadow? So a shadow, like we have lights here in the studio, for those of you watching on YouTube, Mm -hmm. and it's how we were able to be seen. And if I were to hold my hand up, it could cast a shadow. Um, The shadow is not like contradictory to my hand. It's, It's actually reflective of what my hand is, but it's not the reality of my hand. It just gives this vague general outline and idea of what is casting the shadow. Um, So that's what we're going to learn today. The Old Testament is it's a shadow, a foreshadowing really, of the thing that was to come, and that is Jesus. And the main point is no one prefers the shadow if you have the real thing. And so we have to get beyond the shadows and get to what they were pointing to which is the real thing, which is Jesus. Yeah, and I think you can see that word uh, kind of featured prominently in this week's reading. So 
Uh, let's just get into it. We'll start with chapter 8 and verse 1. Here we go. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator and is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. All right, let's pause there for a moment. Uh, This is a transition paragraph, and like we said last week, The author of Hebrews is a master of transitions. This section you just read is transitioning us from what we talked about last week into what we'll talk about today. And remember, we've been saying Jesus is a better high priest. And the new information we're adding this week is part of the reason he's better is he's serving in the true temple, which is in heaven. Mm. So the earthly temple and tabernacle from the Old Testament was just a shadow, a foreshadowing of the true temple. And secondly, we'll see he offered the true sacrifice. In other words, the Old Testament sacrifices were just shadows. So the old things weren't bad, they were just incomplete, uh, in that their whole purpose was to point people forward to something else. And uh, two things that are called old or new here are those covenants, right? So Bill, remind us, what is exactly a covenant? Yeah, it's interesting here in this text, uh, we read about an old and a new covenant. So verse 6 said, um, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So what is a covenant? It's not a word we use very much anymore, but it is something you may hear in a marriage ceremony at a wedding. And that's a really good image of what a covenant is. Um, A marriage is a covenant. Two people entering into an agreement, like a contract, but based in love, right? They exchange signs, rings they wear for the rest of their lives. They make vows. And the the story of the Bible is that God has done that with us. Um, For instance, God did that with Abraham. Um, almost like getting married to his people. And in fact, the Bible does use that very image of God and his people, uh, husband and bride. But the story of the Bible is also that the people of God cheated on him uh, with, you know, cheating on him with other gods. And so the vow was broken. God could have walked away from the relationship, but he didn't. Instead, we're going to find out he created uh, a new covenant. And he's, he's in this text, he's promising a new covenant. All right, so let's uh, let's keep reading together. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and then he quotes uh, Jeremiah 31, um, verses 31 through 34, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Okay, so we'll pause there for a second. Uh, the author of Hebrews has this lengthy quote from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah was a prophet who talked about the limits of the old covenant and the promise of a new covenant. And so right here in this quote from Jeremiah 31, we see what the problem was with the first covenant, with the old covenant. Uh, Jeremiah makes that clear. Even the setting of the book of Jeremiah, the original context, makes it clear. In the time of Jeremiah, when he was a prophet, things in Israel were a disaster. Um, the nation was divided. Uh, exile was just about to happen. Idolatry was rampant. Uh, everything was falling apart. So something was wrong with that first covenant. What was it? It was the people, mm -hmm. the sinfulness of the people. And in the New Testament, you see that, like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. So the weakness of the old covenant was the people and their hard hearts. The new covenant, by contrast, would be completely different. It would be completely unconditional for one thing. It would be dependent only on God and what he did. And the law wouldn't be on stone tablets, but would be written on the people's hearts and on the people's minds. So a sort of spiritual heart surgery. The people would, in short, have the power to obey. And it says the people would know the Lord. They would have this relationship because he would forgive their sins. So all this to say, there's a lot tucked away in that prophecy, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Um, the contrast is clear. It's internal instead of external. The old covenant gave people the law, but it was just all external on stone tablets. They didn't have the ability to internalize, internalize it. They didn't have the ability to follow it. But the new, the new covenant is all internal. So like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone. The new is here. We're new creations. God is at work inside of us this time. Mm-hmm. And because of this, one of the most beautiful parts of what we just read is how it ends. It talks about the forgetfulness of God. Verse 12, um, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Mm. Um, so I preached on this this week. That's kind of one of the places I ended the sermon because it's just so powerful to think about God not remembering your sins, not bringing up your past, but giving you complete freedom from that. So encourage you as always to look up the sermon if you missed it, uh, cascadefellowship.org. So uh, Jeremiah prophesied there uh, that there would be a new covenant and that it would be better. So the, the question then is how would it happen? And I think that's what the author of Hebrews gets into as we enter into chapter 9. Right. So let's flip the page into chapter 9, uh, 9 verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship 
and also an earthly sanctuary. So when we think about the old covenant, we think about the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. We think about the earthly sanctuary. We think about the sacrificial system. And so for the next seven verses in chapter nine, the author reviews the layout of the Old Testament tabernacle, the sacrificial system, all the symbolism, and he lays out, just reminds us how limited the access was to God through that system. In short, one person could come one time a year into the Holy of Holies where God was uh, dwelling, and he did that year after year after year after year after year. His work was never done because it never really accomplished the forgiveness of sins. It was just a, just a shadow, just a symbol. And so after that review in verse 9, the author says, this is just an illustration for the per- present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and external Uh, ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So that's why, in short, the Old Covenant was not as good. It was external, it was an illustration, it was a placeholder. Um, And then the author goes on to explain why Jesus is greater. So that's in Hebrews 9, verse 11. Uh, We'll read that together. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here... He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining uh, eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? All right, so much to unpack in that paragraph. It's really important to note that uh, the book of Hebrews is clear that the Old Testament, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, It was really not paying for human sin. And later in chapter 10, we make that crystal clear. The author says, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, but it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So as we think about this in the Old Testament, it really clarifies our reading of what was actually happening. The book of Hebrews makes it clear There's no transaction. There's no magical thing going on when you kill a goat or you kill a bull. Um, That is not actually paying the real debt for sin. And and why would that be the case? Mm. I mean, humanity had sinned. Humanity had rebelled against God. And so humanity had to pay the price for that rebellion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these sacrifices were just a reminder of that. Um, and you kind of get the sense of that in back in Hebrews chapter 9 now. We'll continue in verse 21. Uh, in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So, continuing here to talk about blood for a second. Um, just get this picture in your mind. There was blood on the altar. There was blood in the tabernacle. There was blood in the most holy place. There was blood on the ark. 
it was actually a pretty gruesome and graphic scene, mm. if you think about it. Um, so R. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite scholars, says this about the scene. During the 2,000 plus years, excuse me, during the 1,000 plus years of the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. During the Passover, for example, a trough was constructed from the temple down to the Kidron Valley for the disposal of all this blood, a sacrificial plumbing system. So why the perpetual sea of blood? For one main reason, to teach that sin demands the shedding of blood. This in no way suggests that the blood itself atones for sins. Otherwise, sacrifices would have been just bled rather than killed. Mm. But it does demonstrate that sin both brings and demands death. Streaming blood provided the sign, even the smell of the old covenant. Mm. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. Thus, the devout worshiper of the old covenant came with a definite awareness First, that sin requires death. Second, that such a sacrifice required the spirit of repentance. And third, that he was pleading on the mercy of God. And fourth, in some cases, that a great sin bearer was coming. Mm -hmm. So, in short, sin means forfeiting life and blood symbolizes life. So this all teaches us sin is serious. It alienates us from God. It can't be cleaned up with a simple self-help program. Sin leads to death. And that's been clear since the very beginning. And because God is holy, every sin ever committed will not go unpunished. It will be punished. The question is, punished in us or punished in our substitute, Jesus? But forgiveness is costly. Right. So Hebrews 9.23 continues, It was necessary then... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. All right. So one simple message, sin is serious. And Jesus fully and finally took care of it. So he entered heaven itself with a better sacrifice. He entered the true tabernacle in heaven. He, he offered his own life and he did so once for all. So this verse and the rest of these verses we've been reading, it makes it clear that we will all die and we will all face judgments. Um, but for those who are in Christ, our sin has already been judged. And that's why this section ends with this amazing verse. If we were to fast forward to the end of this section, Hebrews 10, 18 says, and where uh, these have been forgiven, 
sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Beautiful picture here. It is done. It is finished. The sacrifice for sin has been made, not just a shadow, but the real thing. Everything that needs to be done to solve the problem of sin, it has been done. So, don't try to add to it. Simply rest in Christ and simply put your faith in Christ. Yeah, I love that ending, and I think that's a great place for us to uh, wrap up here again. I just want to say that again. Simply rest in Christ and simply have faith in Christ. Don't try to add to the salvation thing. That Christ did it all for you, and uh, that just beautifully kind of summarizes where we've been today. So we will uh, continue next week by looking at how to respond to all this deep teaching so far in the book of Hebrews, and we want you to not miss it. So make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening or wherever you're watching. Share it with somebody. Um, make sure you check out the, the message from this section in Hebrews. You can find that again at cascadefellowship.org. Uh, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. All right. See you soon, everybody. Bye.